their stories being told by people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. Welcome to Lie Patrol, an edutainment podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history and mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, we hope you learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or at the Paris to Peking race to astound your family, friends, or George Schuster. The headlines are ear-catching, that can't be true factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week, there will be two little lies thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. My name is Michael. My name is Brenna. And the topic this week is... Cars. And cars. <laughs> oh, um, that's it, right? It's cars. Uh, I, yeah. I read through the script. I think it said cars, but I left it back in the uh, trailer. Um, to preface, Michael tricked me into this topic. He is a car maniac, and I would have never agreed to this topic if he hadn't used the forces of evil and persuasion on me. That being said, how do you stump a car guy on cars? I'm not sure. But at least we'll be keeping the British end up, sir. Here it goes. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good comeback to that, but I... Not surprising. Anyways. <laughs> Number one. 007 and the I stands of the Frankenstein Aston Martin Vanquish. Wait, repeat. I, I heard all of the words. They don't make sense. <laughs> 007... And the ice dance of the Frankenstein Aston Martin Vanquish. I don't even know what that, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> well, let's see, it's like. Are all of yours written in prose? The, no. <laughs> That's probably the most Shakespearean, I guess. <laughs> the, the, the Aston Martin Vanquish is a Frankenstein who does an ice dance. Is that so hard? <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, that makes sense now. Okay. This, this is your way of making sure you can, like, get me to reword it and see if I'm lying about something. 007 and the Disappearing DB5. These aren't headlines. What's yeah, your third? What's your third? I'm, going, I'm trying to find it. Here it is. I didn't put it in outline form. <laughs> 007 and the Deadly Outlawed Bridge Jump. And the rum is kicking in. What do you want me to say to this? I want you to pick one, so I'll read it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm Which trying one to... What do you think isn't true? Was there an outlawed bridge league bridge jump? Deadly bridge jump? Was uh... there a disappearing DB5? Or was there a Frankenstein vanquish that did an ice dance, Michael? How is that so hard? <laughs> uh... Okay. I don't know what it means by a disappearing DB5, but I know a lot of there there is some that are unaccounted for. There is definitely I'm sorry, what was the bridge jumping one? Which Bond film is that out of? Oh, you're not gonna tell me. Okay. I'm not gonna give you any. Sorry, info. sorry, the the other ones the other ones had a movie along with them. So just a band bridge jump? Okay. 007 and the deadly outlawed bridge jump. Implying a bridge jump took place it was deadly and it had been outlawed that is what that implies i think that's i think that's true but i can't think of a bridge jumping scene uh 
the the first one's definitely true because there's definitely a scene from uh, uh, which what is that from? Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. You you just said it. Oh, I did it. Oh, it's not in the. It's not in the title. Why well, did I put it in the title? Anyways, one of the, one of the Pierce Brosnan movies, there is a a scene where an Aston Martin is seen doing stuff on a frozen lake. So let's go ahead and start with that one. Okay, but the it was also Frankenstein Aston Martin. So are you ready for well, that one? Yeah, fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Um. Before we start, how are you feeling about these all being Bond-related cars? Okay, Sorry. well... Bond-related car. I have a Bond-related one, and I really thought you were going to choose it. Oh, no. You have a Bond one? I do. This might just be a Bond car episode. Actually, technically two of mine are related how to... How is that a thing? Well, I mean, okay. Bond movies are very famous for their cars and their car scenes, but that makes us seem like we've also already referenced james bond multiple <laughs> times on our podcast we're gonna come off as those james bond people oh well oh god okay <laughs> 007 and the ice dance of the frankenstein aston martin vanquish coming off of a string of bmws and a ford fairlane 2002's james bond title die another day decided to return to its roots, sort of, and crack a deal with Aston Martin to feature its V12 Vanquish. I say sort of because in 1991, Ford Motor Company, a notoriously American company, had taken full control of the British vehicle icon that was Aston Martin. There's Mm -hmm. a fact for you that you knew. (laughs) (laughs) The Vanquish was a powerful and slick-looking ride, and with Q's famous artillery upgrades and a sick camouflage package, it was no wonder why this unique car was nicknamed the Vanish. It was, yeah, it makes it completely invisible. It's yep. pretty cool. I mean, also it's fake, but, you know, it's pretty cool anyways. <laughs> <laughs> most importantly, the Vanquish became the star of the movie and one of the most iconic James Bond chase scenes in history. The Ice Lake slash Ice Palace chase. Would you like to watch it right now? Yes, because I'm always in the mood to watch it. Okay, good, because then I also make a bunch of references to how it is. The the last thing I remember from it is, like, he, like, drives backwards through the the igloo (laughs) and then ends up, like, the car ends up at the bottom of the lake. And I, honestly, it seems like they did that for real, but I didn't read anything that said that it happened. Okay, well, that was fun. No, I guess it wasn't. That wasn't fun. (laughs) Uh, so we just watched the clip. I encourage everybody. I'm, it will be in the show notes. Um, so you should probably go watch that before we talk any further. Uh, otherwise, if you haven't seen the movie, you will not know what I'm talking about. Anyways, uh, a recap. In the scene, Bond is using the adaptive camouflage to become invisible and spy on the big bad boy. But when a skidoo unknowingly crashes into the vanish... The system fails, and a chase ensues between Bond and Zhao, who is in a Jaguar XKR, and a sexy one at that. And I have to say, it is a ridiculously fun scene. <laughs> As you could probably mm-hmm. say now, that is a pretty sick scene. Throughout the chase, Bond is able to twist and turn on the icy lake surface with ease while evading artillery fire, as well as dishing it out. He even drives it backwards and up and down ice ramps. It's pretty crazy. And if you're thinking that the Vanquish was so cool, there was no way it needed help with those maneuvers, you'd be wrong. Yep. (laughs) I called it. (laughs) That that part's probably getting cut, but yeah, (laughs) as we're we're watching it, it was like, I I asked Brenna, as it was on the lake, did they have to do anything to the car? 
She's like, I'm telling a story. Well, yeah, it's literally a story about the car. <laughs> In order for the Vanquish to achieve the right amount of traction for the scenes, Ford outfitted the four special effects cars in the film with 300 brake horsepower Ford Boss 302 V8 engines in the rear, as opposed to the V12s, mm-hmm. uh, making room in the front for front differentials and drive shafts, courtesy of the Ford Explorer. Wow, that's actually really cool. Yeah. So, so they made uh, a V8 all-wheel drive. Well, four-wheel drive. Yeah. Uh, turning the V12 Vanquish into a four-wheel drive Aston Martin Ford Hybrid or a British American Franken car. That's awesome. How many do they make? Well, they have oh. four special effects cars for this. So there's another one we'll talk about later. I don't know if it had that package on it, though. But <laughs> when I was looking this up, there is, and I don't know um, if people souped them up. I didn't look into it too much. But apparently, Aston Martin, they have like a club get-together for people who have vanquishes, and they go for ice drives, apparently. I don't know if they have four-wheel drive or they're just out there playing games, slipping and sliding, or what. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I I couldn't tell me either. <laughs> up until about 20 seconds ago, I didn't think they made an all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive no. Vanquish ever. Thanks, Ford, I guess. <laughs> Which is kind of funny, since near the end of the Ice Palace race, Bond pushes a traction button that deploys retractable studs in the Vanish's tires so he could hide on a mound of snow without slipping. And the funny part is, and I didn't notice it until I'm thinking about it now, it, it, fo- it, the, the camera zooms in on one of the front tires, which wouldn't make any sense yeah. in a normal vanquish. <laughs> exactly. It just feels a little wrong that Q should get credit for what that four-wheel drive system obviously had a huge part in. It was not that traction system that was keeping him on the road. It was apparently the Ford Explorer ports. <laughs> In the end, Brosnan ended up liking the car so much he became quite upset when he learned that Aston Martin wasn't going to just give the star of the movie featuring publicity for the car. They desperately needed to sell well a free car. After a lot of hullabaloo, Brosnan got his way and was gifted a custom-built Vanquish, which unfortunately became a casualty of a 2015 fire at his Malibu home. Which is so, sad. so his home lit on fire, or the car lit on fire in his home? <laughs> the whole house burned oh, down. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that's Yeah, that's Malibu. Sad. Yeah, you know, it's not great in summer. Especially now. Oh, my God. Just last... We had a whole bunch of celebrities lose their houses just last summer. One summer ago. But even though he lost it, uh, for a while, Bond understood what it was like to not chase dreams, but to live them. That is a quote from the movie... Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. It's been, it's yep. been years since I've seen it. So I understand I, that. You know. That's more for the people. You're Stop you are a person of the people. Sprinkling the bond in there. <laughs> You're gonna enjoy the other ones. <laughs> uh, side note: Ford sold Aston Martin Lagonda in 2007, the same year the latest Vanquish rolled off the line, and it is now owned by a bunch of shareholders, including Mercedes parent company Daimler. 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 Okay, so. Go back to the other two, because it's... So one is called 007 and the Disappearing DB5. Okay, but what does that mean, though? Okay, and what was the third one? 007 and the Deadly Outlawed Bridge Jump. I'm gonna go with that one's true. You wanna go with that one next? Yeah, yeah. Alright, number two. 007 and the Deadly Outlawed Bridge Jump. Everyone loves a cool car scene. 
that's why we're here folks the cool car scenes and bond movies are some of the most notorious for pulling off the most ridiculous car stunts or at least they look like they're pulling them off the infamous corkscrew bridge jump in 1974's the man with the golden gun was no different in fact some claim it to be the greatest movie car stunt of all time so we're gonna eh, watch it that's debatable we're gonna watch it michael oh yeah that's not debatable <laughs> we are going to watch it <laughs> me continuing this podcast with you that's debatable just fyi uh it was roger moore in case uh we said it was sean connery <laughs> because i always confuse honestly they honestly look so much alike to me with the blue eyes and whatever uh yeah what did you think so that was a really cool stunt, but man, was it marred by the, 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 the trumpet. The slide whistle. The slide whistle, yeah, that's what it's called. It is the worst. Is the, people complain about how they put that sound over it. Like, if you look this up and the first thing is the slide whistle, what were they thinking? Yeah, because, so I've actually, I've, I've seen that before mm-hmm. and like, it was, that was a practical uh, stunt that they did, and then it's it's so cheapened by that. Yeah. For those in our audience who have not seen this, oh, also this one is gonna be. Um, so this clip will be also linked in the show notes. All of the clips for all of these, and you should watch them all before we talk, <laughs> because then you'll know what we're talking about. For those in our audience who have not seen this particular installment in the series of our English secret agent from England, as Sheriff J. W. Pepper would call him which is funny because he calls him your English from England. Oh. Yeah, he's an idiot. Okay. They make him out to be an idiot. I was wondering what the punchline there was. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm the idiot, I guess. You just don't expect somebody to say something stupid like that. Also true. <laughs> oh, my God. Going back and, like, watching some of these, they have some of the worst, like, racial and, like, country-based stereotypes about people. They're very, like, Sergeant sort of or Sheriff Pepper is so bad with some of the things he says. Ugh, it's disgusting. Anyways, the scene occurs when Bond and Sheriff Pepper in the passenger seat are engaged in a high-speed chase through rural Thailand when half of a rickety wooden bridge is spotted by Bond. He slams on the brakes of beautiful cherry-red 1974 AMC Hornet X and turns around. Stopping in front of the twisted bridge that would surely put that hatchback at his contents in the river, he slams on the gas and Roger Moore asks, Have you ever heard of Evil Knievel? The car shoots off, completes a full 360 barrel roll, and lands on the other side of the river. Not without a horrible slide whistle sound effect to the audience's chagrin. Even though this was not the first time the maneuver had been done, it was the first time anyone had pulled it off in a movie, putting it in the Guinness Book of World Records. Yes. i agree (laughs) and although eon productions had brought on a ton of extra hands as well as two frogmen in the river should the car land at the drink the stunt was not deadly or even harmful at all in fact lauren bumps willer the stunt driver in the hornet landed the jump perfectly on the first try which was amazing in 1974 (laughs) That car didn't get a single scratch from completing one of the most daring movie stunts of all time. And why do you think that was, Michael? I don't know. Voodoo. No, I'm just kidding. It's not voodoo. It's a good old Hollywood... Careful planning. (laughs) Careful planning and eating the right... (laughs) Getting a (laughs) well-balanced breakfast. breakfast, Yes. 
Don't beat me to things. <laughs> it's because the scene was also a historic first for a different reason. It was the first time a computer program was used to map out a car stunt in a movie. The corkscrew jump, or the Astro Spiral, was first conceived of and performed by the U.S. racing driver Jay Milligan, who named it the Astro Spiral after performing it in the Houston Astrodome in 1972, just two years before hmm. uh, Man with the Golden Gun would be shot. Milligan came to Eon Productions with the idea that they should get their dashing spy to pull off the maneuver in their next film, and Eon immediately got to work trying to work it out. However, Eon was hesitant to just crash a bunch of cars on location until they could figure out just how to flip the Hornet, a car Milligan insisted they use, considering it was neither safe nor cost-effective to do so, and they turned to technology instead. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't just, like, especially keep, in rural keep, Thailand, just keep, keep piling up. Keep throwing cars at it. Just keep throwing cars. One of them's got to flip, right? <laughs> How many more sun drivers do we have left? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it turns out a guy named Raymond McHenry with a company called Calspan, formerly the Cornell Aeronautical Laboratory, had been working on computer models and visualizations to deal with just this issue. The, they, they had been mapping, like, vehicle safety stuff. They had just, okay... Let me, let me get to this. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. McHenry and company created the Highway Vehicle Object Simulation Model, or HVOSM, which was a program that would take their calculations and model it in a 3D wireframe form. And get this, it didn't require nearly killing the stunt team. What? Yeah, like, crazy, right? They didn't have to get a stunt guy to go into that little computer and drive a little commuter car. That was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... They, they created this software that would do a 3D model. It was still one of those ginormous, take-up-a-whole-room kind of computers. And they had initially been starting out with doing the vehicle safety, like, crash models mm -hmm. to see how vehicles would crash without actually crashing them. And uh, they decided that they wanted to kind of go into the stunt stuff as a little break for fun <laughs> between all the crash models. <laughs> Once McHenry was on the job, they were able to calculate the launch, angle, speed, lift, etc. of what it would take to tumble and land that car on the other side of that river. And obviously it worked incredibly well. And although the Astro Spiral was not outlawed, as my misleading title stated, for a time no one else was allowed to perform the stunt. What do you think? Uh, uh, uh insurance liability reasons. But not bad. <laughs> I don't know what it would be like to insure people back in the 70s for this kind of stuff. Well, there wasn't much of lawsuits, so I, probably pretty easy and pretty cheap. Probably. There's a reason a lot of the Bond stunts were, were done with practical effects rather than CGI like they do it now. Yeah. Well, I mean, also they didn't have it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Considering, once again, this was the first time it had ever been done to model a car Okay, anyways. <laughs> so the reason nobody was allowed to perform it, uh, well, at least after the movie was made, uh, is because the stunt was patented through McHenry in June of 1974 to keep other productions and Daredevils from stealing 007's Thunder. Hey, tying in old episodes already! <laughs> well, that's annoying. What? <laughs> that they patented it. Well, I oh. mean, it is, but... Were you gonna run out? And do I wonder. It? I wonder what they actually got the patent for. I wonder. So it's actually the I had the it's 
The patent is linked in the show notes. But I don't have those. Uh, so the patent is for an apparatus built to encourage a vehicle, either life-size or toy, to like um, complete a barrel roll in air and, but, and then land on the other side. But so it's it, for the whole app, like I wonder building if it, of it all. <laughs> but does it specify for left versus right barrel rolls, or does it specify no, both? No, it's all rolling. It's all. It's oh. just all. It's called the astral spiral. If you do an astral spiral, it's patented. However. The patent has expired as of 1991. And since then, the Astro Spiral has been performed multiple times, including the 2017 Guinness Book of World Records entry for furthest barrel roll in a production vehicle by pro driver Terry Grant in a Jaguar E-Pace. Hmm. Which I have to say, they, it's set up... So one of the problems with how doing it in the movie was different than doing it when the guy originally did it at the Astrodome is that Astrodome was set up for stunts. They had all the space, they had all the people, they have all, you know... Are you about to tell me they found a bridge in Thailand to... They had to... to... So that bridge, they they had to build that bridge out, but they had to make it... They built out a spiral-looking bridge, mm -hmm. but they covered it with a bunch of wood planks to make it look like it was just a janky. there. But wow. yeah, no, they built it, but it's, you know, it is, uh, people live there. Like, you can't just... And it's not uh, poured concrete, it's not like you know manufactured dirt or any of this it's the real river bank so that was hard so this uh 2017 one it's completely like a stunt it's all been set up you know we've had years and years we have decades of computer stuff and i have to say it was not nearly as smooth let's take a watch but it's that but that was a guinness world record doesn't he have to do a the the spiral going the other way too in order for it to count? <laughs> Not one. Oh. You know, I'm sorry. I didn't bring my Guinness Book of World Records expert here today to uh, talk on this. Oh, uh, I guess it's just a little mini thing while we're, while we're here then. Uh, in order for the Guinness World Record, uh, in order to hold a Guinness World Record for a land speed record, you have to go one way over a predetermined distance. It's usually a mile. And you get timed, and then that's how they find your speed is a... They have a measured distance over over a time, but in order to hold the record, you also have to go back the other way, and then the two averages are taken, and then that's your speed. So, yeah. a cars cars will have an unofficial record because that's like the higher number they got to, but then the then they have to go back the other way on the track or wherever they prepped and do it again, and then it's averaged. So like that's weird. So like you, uh, you could set up a track going down Kilimanjaro and go like 300 miles an hour, but then going up, you're only going to go like 50. So you'll average out it. That makes sense. Cause it's a speed thing. Whereas this, like, it's not like he could pick a different spot on the ramp to ramp off. Like it is a set amount of, I know it was, it was, it was, it was a joke. He, okay. <laughs> I hate this show. I found that one, the 2017 one, but I had, when I was doing my research, I found this other one that looked like, um, it looked like a rally car with, you know, it was all decked out, and it was somebody like a Travis Pastrana type that had also done it for like a I was about to thing, say. and it looked, it was really tight, it was like nice and tight, but I couldn't find it after that, so I just put it in the uh, eBay's. I believe someone on, in Travis Pastrana's crew did it. Uh, in a Nitro Circus episode. That's what I... Well, but yeah, it was something I, like... I couldn't tell you offhand who it was. But I couldn't find it after that one time. I, I really should just click everything. It's just, you know, when you have as many tabs, 
That's me. Um, tab junkie. Tab junkie. Oh, and Top Gear attempted it twice and failed twice. Destroyed oh. two cars, at least. Oh. <laughs> so, maybe the car didn't sprout wings, but it definitely flew. Which is a reference to when Q said they were working on a car with wings in the movie. <laughs> I can't roll my eyes any harder. <laughs> oh no, folks, his eyes have fallen right out of his skull. <laughs> okay, well, that sucked. That was fun, though, right? Yeah, it was fun. All right, give me the last I had one. A... Oh, here, oh, before sorry. we move on, I'm going to show you the sick video. So... They have a video of the jump. This is the spiral jump before it was edited. This is oh, just so this by somebody is on location. Holding... I think this is what I've seen actually. This one is so cool. Yeah, I, yeah, that 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 is what I have I have previously seen. Yeah, so they had to make the the wheel wheels bigger for some purpose. I imagine it all had to do with the science behind the measurements, but uh, technically it was a modified AMC Hornet X. But mostly it was not. Um, yeah, and the, they have that footage that's just a handheld camera of somebody who was working on scene. It was so smooth. Yeah, so smooth. So smooth. Okay. All right. Give me the last one. All right. 007 and the Disappearing DB5, which is eh, not my favorite story, but whatever. <laughs> The first time our beloved MI6 agent took the wheel of an Aston Martin would be in the iconic 1964 Goldfinger, and his luxury death machine would be the famous DB5. At least we've seen this one. Yep. <laughs> James Bond loved this car so much, it has appeared in seven movies so far and is apparently canon as Bond's personal vehicle, as opposed to something MI6 chose and Q outfitted in an underground lab. If you remember in Casino Royale, he... Oh, yeah. Technically... He was supposed to, like, just have gone out and bought it, but they had him win it in Casino Royale at a poker game. But yeah, that's his. That's not from my six. Uh, the car went over so well that it was also used in the follow-up 1965 007 flick, Thunderball. But an action movie can't have just one car doing all the work, so how many DB5s do you think were made for Goldfinger and Thunderball? Uh, this was, like, before they had... they. They were thinking about. I'm gonna go with two. They had the the one that was driven by Bond, and then they had the stunt car for both movies. Uh, y yeah. And then, how many do you think there are today? I think that's a trick question. Wait, like how many DB5s? Period, or how many Bond DB5s? Bond DB5s. I don't care about other uh, DB5s. Let's go with one. Let's go with one. <laughs> okay, actually, you were you were kind of close with your number on the first thing. If we were only talking about Goldfinger. There were four cars. A star car, a stunt car, and two PR cars that never appeared in the film. The star car is the road car used in all the driving scenes, close-ups, and such. Uh, when you think of Bond in the DB5, you're thinking of him in the star car. The stunt car is the gadget car, which was the car set to do all the special effects scenes. Initially, Eon Productions could only afford the two cars for Goldfinger, which were on loan from Aston Martin. So in Goldfinger, they did just have the the driving car and the road car and the gadget car. Mm -hmm. Had that change for Thunderball. PR cars were exactly that for press releases, events, and exhibitions. 
After the success of Goldfinger, Eon could now afford to purchase some of their own DB5s, which they used to hype up the public for Thunderball, but which were never seen on screen. And technically, those are the only two the production owned, mm. because the other two were still on loan from Aston Martin. Ah. But they souped them up with all the cool gadgets. As of this, the year of our Lord 2021, there are three cars accounted for. The stunt car, having been stripped of and then refitted with its gadgets, was last sold in October of 2010 for $4.6 million in 2010. Then there were the show cars. After paying $62,000 each for the two PR cars, so that's what, $124,000 mm-hmm. for the both? Uh, Eon Productions, the production company for Goldfinger and Thunderball, sold the cars as a pair at guess how much? Uh, but what year? So this would be at in 1965 after shooting Thunderball. Uh, I don't know. Probably probably a little depreciation loss. Let's say hundred thousand, fifty each. They sold the cars as a pair at three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars for both. Um, yeah, totally worth it. Could you imagine scooping up both of those cars for less than four grand? Yeah, that's quite the deal. Yeah, the deal gets sweeter. Uh, one of the cars was traded straight across for a 1964 Ferrari 250 GTO, and then later sold to a guy named Frank Baker for 21600 and like four weeks of cruises, which sounds great, until you find out that the Ferrari would have get netted you how much? Uh, the uh, original 250 with matching VINs, that's gotta be over two mil. Actually, the 1964 Ferrari 250 GTO holds, or at least had held, a auction record at 40 million. I believe that's been beaten. It has, but it. Oh, but at the time, at, at the had, time, I. I, not, I mean, I don't know when this this was sold in. I don't know when, but it's a modern day price after 2000. <laughs> Anyways, this isn't about the GTO, but. What a sick car. Yeah, that is a beautiful car. Oh, man. So beautiful. (sighs) Okay, money aside, which would you rather have? The Bond DB5 or the Ferrari GTO? Is it one of the ones that was driven in the film? Because I think I'd rather have... Oh, the... See, that's the thing. No, it's a PR car. Mm. So it's the PR car that was like... No, give me the Ferrari. Oh, yeah, no. I would always pick the Ferrari. I'm glad we're on the same idea. Oh no, but if it if it was if it was the star car, I would most rather definitely have that one. Yes, well. DB5s are pretty sick. Like No, DB5s are pretty sick. And having a dope ass story to go along with your car is way better than just having a cool car. Well, how about a sad story, Michael? So anyways, you make uh, me cry. <laughs> Can I just get to my sad story? Fine. I haven't even finished with the stupid PR cars yet. <laughs> I'm just trying to give a background on where all the DB5s are. (laughs) So anyways, that one, uh, after a million more changes of hands, the car now sits in Holland's National Automobile Museum in the Ramsdonksveer, Holland, which was much better than the bankrupt New Jersey Jaguar dealership it had previously been in. Like, that thing swapped so many times and it ended up just in some New Jersey Jaguar dealership that also went bankrupt and somehow thank goodness, ended up in a automobile museum in Holland. Because <laughs> otherwise, that thing could, probably could have ended up in a junkyard with the way it was, with its trajectory. The second PR car was on display at the Smoky Mountain Car Museum in Tennessee until August of 2019, when it was sold for 
guess how much. Uh, you said 2016? 2019. 2019. Uh, I don't know. $10 million. $6.4 To a super secret mystery buyer. Which makes me think this guy was going to bring it back to a secret rich underwater villain lair. <laughs> so $6.4 million, That's not bad. For 2019. Yeah. For being a PR car. Not one of the yeah. chassis numbers. Not the special ones. Which leaves us with the star car. The real showstopper that carried the traveling, uh, sort of licensed troubleshooter to all of his important bad guy appointments. <laughs> that's that's one of his lines. Yeah, no, <laughs> See, I, ca I, caught, I caught that one. Sprinkle, sprinkle. <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, many Aston Martin owners claim to have the star car. However, it would only take a quick glimpse at the chassis number to know that they are mistaken. All of the DB5s used in Goldfinger have chassis numbers beginning with DB5. That is except for the star car. Can, do you want to guess why it doesn't have? It was ne It was never titled for, for road use, so it probably doesn't have a VIN, does it? Oh, no. no oh, no? It's, it's okay. Oh. It's, uh, well, damn. We're going to come up to another cute little story. At the time, Eon Productions was filming Goldfinger. They had wanted James Bond to drive an Aston Martin DB4, but could not afford it. So Aston Martin cut him a deal by outfitting one of their prototypes instead, the DB5 prototype, which was a late series DB4, and can be distinguished as such by the side marker lights, which do not look like the production DB5s. Oh. So technically, it's a DB4 that was supposed to be the prototype for the upcoming DB5. Just just reskinned. Yeah, and oh, once again, all alone. <laughs> yeah. Its chassis number also begins with DP, meaning development prototype. Oh. So it's the only one that doesn't have a DB. Well, after Thunderball was finished, Aston Martin stripped the star car of its gadgets and sold it with the car exchanging hands two more times before ending up at auction in 1987. A man named Robert Luongo, not to be confused with Canadian ice hockey goaltender Roberto Luongo. <laughs> <laughs> he would buy a DB5, though. <laughs> He's just trying to live his best life, okay? <laughs> yeah. Made the highest bid for the car, either 250000 or 275000 I say either or because the facts in this case are anything but solid. In fact, the lifelines of these cars have been so confusing, a man by the name of Britt Dave Horrell, Warrell spent six years trying to piece it all together and published his book, The Most Famous Car in the World. That's what the DB5 is considered. Ah. Yeah. I'm going to rely mostly on that, but since that book was published in 1993, we still will not get a factual view. Anyways, Robert Luongo won the auction, but he did not win it for himself. Instead, he was there to win it for his brother-in-law, a developer in Florida by the name of Anthony V. Puglisi III. But tragedy was bound to strike. Well, not for Puglisi's pocketbook. Do you want to guess what the tragedy might be? His, Wrong! His house caught on fire? <laughs> no. Unfortunately. I'm just kidding. No, it's not. I don't, I don't want people's houses catching on fire. Especially with priceless cars in them. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry, uh, Pierce. <laughs> Bronson. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> no other Pierces. I'm not sorry to any of the other Pierces in the world. <laughs> Guy Pierce. <laughs> yeah. 
After purchasing the most famous car in the world and allowing his brother-in-law to promote the car at shows and exhibitions for a couple of years, Pugliese acquired an appraisal for the car, which was estimated by the appraiser to be worth between three and five million dollars is what we have. Three and five million pricelessness. <laughs> exactly. It's very priceless, like three to five million pricelessness. <laughs> now, this occurred supposedly in the mid-1990s. Which seems odd, considering at this point, none of the cars had sold over a million dollars. And the purchase price was a fraction of that. So, like, why would they say it was worth five million when not a single one had ever been sold for that? And he bought it for 250000 Well. Probably less, less than ten years prior. The way insurance works now is, with a classic car, you, uh, they, the insurance company will go look at other vehicles and see what they sell for well as the years go by and less cars are being sold it's harder to find analogous like oh a car like yours was sold for this much so we can appraise it for that much so i imagine at the time uh puglisi probably declared the value at between three and five million and paid the premiums on that so that if the car was ever damaged or destroyed he would get that money back to go buy a similar one sure Thanks, Insurance Man Michael. Yeah, you're welcome. We got Insurance Man Michael on the case. <laughs> but Puglisi found a company who agreed to insure the piece of motor memorabilia for $4.2 million, according to one informed writer at MotorTrend.com. Apparently this guy was... He worked with uh, one of the guys and then also was in the know for a later thing. Hmm. And then, in 1997, it went poof. Or more so, the garage door at the Boca Raton hangar in Florida, where the car was being stored, accidentally, I don't know, fell off its hinges? Security system wires had been mistakenly cut? And maybe tire tracks show that the Aston Martin one of the kind was dragged out of the hangar against its will? <laughs> it was apparently speculated in a subsequent investigation that due to where the tire marks stopped, the car was loaded into a small plane and flown away, never to be seen again. Michael looks sad. That's a shame, because cars like that need to be shown off at places and to people and not shoved in a barn or someone's basement for them to enjoy. You know what people actually think happened? And I don't prescribe. We'll talk about what I think happened. If so, a follow-up assumption made by many is that the plane did not make it very far and crashed into the ocean, leaving the car to quite literally sleep with the fishes, which I think is worst-case Ontario, because... <laughs> Like, how bad of planning is that? You worked so hard to steal this thing, but then you didn't think about a place to land, so you just took it across the ocean, but you realized you couldn't make it because it's a small plane, and you just crash, and that thing's at the bottom. That would be so depressing. Uh, especially since there's, like, sea monsters down there touching it. Ooh. Imagine a shark in the driver's seat, though. <laughs> I love this interior. <laughs> Man, get a load of this. Take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if <laughs> I wonder if that's a, uh, a a tourist attraction in the ocean for all the sea life. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 look. Watch this. Pushes the button, pops the trunk. Look, it's got room for everything. <laughs> <laughs> As for Puglisi, he made out like a bandit with the insurance company paying the full 4.2 million. 
However, his brother-in-law, Luongo, who was at this point no longer his brother-in-law, took Puglisi to court for a cut of the car's value and 10% of the insurance money. To be fair, uh, the guy who insured the car, so they got the appraisal from some other person. Mm-hmm. And then the guy who insured the car, I think his name was Grundy. Oh, Grundy Insurance. In interviews to this day, he says he doesn't know why he insured it for that much because an easy million would have uh, covered the, the asset, like would have protected the guy's worth. And so he regrets ever insuring it. And he says that the appraiser was a well-known, like, uh, established person. Mm. But he, to this day, regrets actually writing that policy. <laughs> oh, sucks to suck. Luongo's claim was that because of his... Luongo's claim was that because of his hard, unpaid work to promote the car from 1987 until the insurance policy was bought, he had increased the value of the vehicle from 250000 to $4.2 and deserved the money since between that time he was doing all that work. Luongo also claimed Puglesi had said he would get a cut of the profit once he had sold the DB5 prototype, but Puglesi insists he had stipulated the car had to have been sold within the first six months of ownership back in 1987. So this guy's thinking, oh, I've been working so hard, I rose this up, and his brother's his brother-in-law's like, no, bro. I said you could do that if you sold in six months, and it's been like ten years. <laughs> but... Lumongo won. Oh. So he got his nice settlement. It all smells really fishy. But no leads ever came, and both Puglisi and Luongo came out monetarily better in the end. Yeah, well, that's what insurance do. Yeah. Although, nowadays, that car be even five times more priceless than five times priceless. Okay, so now, knowing all of that, what do you think happened? Uh, it's definitely sitting in some guy's basement, and it'll never see the light of day again because it's it's too well known. But someone definitely owns it and de- is definitely displays it to their really really close friends who have tight lips. That's exactly uh, what I think happened because when you get into like you know you get into the world of collector cars and stuff, oh my god, people will do anything to get their juicy little hands on things. Yeah, so I'll say what I think happened. Uh, If you ask me, a plane that size does not need another airport to offload cargo. And a ride as nice and famous as that Aston Martin, I don't know who would have the heart to destroy it. It's probably in someone's garage, never to see the light of day, exactly, like so many other stolen prizes. Yeah, so basically, like, uh, they said in the investigation that it had to be a small cargo plane, And then, so the police immediately checked other airports to see if anything had been offloaded or anything, and that's why they think, oh, he must have gone to the, like, they were trying to go across sea. Mm. But honestly, like, if it's a small enough plane, just big enough to hold the car, you know how many private properties people just land on? Like, you could be out in farmland and nobody would think any different if you look like you were just out there spraying stuff or something. So Puglisi lived in Florida? Yeah, so that's where the the Boca Raton... Yeah, so... I'm going with that car is definitely in Mexico and some cocaine dealer cowboy guy landed the plane, never offloaded it, and then built a house around the car, never having moved it. That actually wouldn't be a bad idea. In fact, I'm sure that there have been times that that's happened because they love that kind of stuff. Well, I was saving this for one of the 
one of my mini stories, but it seems like a good place here is uh, almost every single McLaren F1 uh, VIN number is accounted for, except for like one or two, and one of them is the El Chapo McLaren F1, yep. where it ended up in Mexico and it hasn't been seen in like 10, 15 years. But the crazy thing is, is that the license plate ended up on a McLaren F1 in England about six, seven years ago. And uh, there's lots of conjecture and weirdness about the whole thing. But uh, basically, that's that's the prevailing theory is that uh, it went down to went down to Mexico. Uh, a guy in Britain ended up buying it, getting it flown back to his house. And because the guy who, the guy in Britain who has, uh, who bought it, or excuse me, because the guy in Britain who, uh, supposedly owns it now also has McLaren F1, but the one he has isn't street legal. Uh, he, he swapped VIN plates and the El Chapo McLaren F1 is probably sitting in his garage never to see the light of day again. Yep. I remember that story. Yeah. That's a really good one. That's exactly what makes me think like, you know, yeah maybe for unexperienced it, and it's probably possible that it was an inexperienced person because you know i do have a motive here as well it's possible it's been destroyed but knowing the how hard people work to get their hands on these cars i don't know you could have found somebody to help you t- pull this off you and here's, here's the thing is if it ended up in the ocean someone has to know about it no, things go crashing in the ocean all the time. Yeah, that. you might not know where it is in the ocean, but if you knew what it was in a and like a an area about where it is, oh, you'd go you go looking for oh, it. Well. <laughs> At least to get what like a, a badge or something off it. Uh, yeah, go go grab a VIN plate. Oh yeah. man, that even that would be priceless. Oh my god, that would be insane. Uh, my second theory on what happened to it is the plane flew through the Bermuda Triangle and it's in another dimension now. Also, never to see the light of day. Maybe that's uh, who. Maybe they flew in through the Bermuda Triangle to On kidnap purpose. it, and then took it back through. Yeah, somebody dimensionally kidnapped hard <laughs> five. That's a pri- that is priceless history they're stealing. <laughs> the Brits will never forgive you. Uh, for me, um, as for motive, if Longo had put that much effort into raising the value thinking he would get a cut after the sale, but all of a sudden wasn't a part of the family anymore, it seems like a logical thing for him to do would be to force the sale hmm. and get paid, if you know what I'm saying. So, you know, like, there's a good way to get paid, and that is through insurance. Which I'm just going to cut ties with the family. Yeah, fair enough. However, if whoever took the prototype DB5 is listening to this and still has that car, might I say... A rather interesting car you have. That's the last James Bond quote. There we go. Finished. Nailed it. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a side note. Uh, In 2018, supposedly investigators got a lead about the car being spotted in the Middle East, but nothing ever came of it aside from some misleading clickbait titles for reputable media outlets like the UK's The Sun. Yeah, and besides, Not reputable. <laughs> uh, 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 it was probably just a regular DB5 ended up in Abu Dhabi or 
Oh well, yeah, Saudi you know, Arabia. There's all those people that are just like people want even just seeing one of these cars makes people feel special. So somebody will just say it, but who knows? Maybe things got swapped. Yep. We always want to think that somebody in Dubai or something. What's that? Is Dubai the super rich place? Yeah, Dubai has a fleet of supercars now. Actually, the ones that the cop shoes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Do you remember we had a, we had a college friend who got pulled over by a cop and he sent a picture. Uh, it was it was a Lamborghini. It was Lamborghini Murcielago. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, and the that story goes is uh, I don't remember what our friend was driving, but uh, the the cops pulled him over, and the cops were just like, "Oh, you have a cool car. I just wanted to talk to you about yeah. it." Yeah, yeah, no, he didn't even. <laughs> yeah, that was that was cool, but yeah, people want to think that Dubai is where all the cool stuff's going, where all the rich people were hiding all their stuff in the Middle East. In Dubai, you have the car, you own the car. (laughs) Go for it. So, for this week, I focus on the distribution of vehicles more than the actual vehicles, and more specifically on special edition and one-offs. Every car is special in its own way, but some cars are more special. And oh my god, people will pay insane prices just to own the only 1999 gated manual Lamborghini Murcielago Spider in electric green. A lot of the exclusivity comes down to how the cars are optioned from the factory. Do you know what endling means? Endling? Endling. Ooh. You know, I guess not. It's the last of an endangered species. Oh, that's sad. (laughs) When it's gone, the species is extinct forever, and it applies to exotic cars just as much as animals. People want to own something that no one else can ever get. And it's weird, and it's strangely beautiful, and it spawned all my stories for this week. I like it. And as a heads up, I talk a lot about money in this, so for the record, the time of recording is the first quarter of 2021, so when I say today, it's early 2021 when you do the math conversions. Wait, so you talk about money a lot? You yes. You want to talk about something we have none of? Amazing. Just great. I'm going to love it. Neiman Marcus sold out of every car they ever sold. Okay. The DeLorean came in more than one color. Okay. For $100, you could own a James Bond car. Well, I'm done for the week, guys. How is everybody doing? Yeah, We're well, I, just leave now. I gave you real headlines, not weird, prosy things. Okay, I feel like the DeLorean doesn't come in more than one color because they only made, like, five. And they were all just a smuggle cocaine. And I think there was just, like, silver. <laughs> I don't know. Why would they make them in different colors if they didn't even care about the whole line? Ah, that one's going to be the one that I don't feel good about. That's the one that I I feel my gut says that's a lie. Neiman Marcus sold out of all of their cars. That, honestly, can I just make a, totally, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make a confession. I thought Neiman Marcus was like a clothing store. I didn't even know that the American Motor Company was a thing. <laughs> <before>. <laughs> um, and then I feel like you could buy a Bond car for a hundred bucks because we know how cheap things were. And they had all kinds of garbage Bond cars. He had some garbage cars too. Oh God. Oh, you really got me this week. It just hurts, Michael. Give me the Neiman Marcus one. Do you want me to read it, or do you want me to re say the thing? No. Oh, okay. You think? Okay. Well, that's my life. 
Neiman Marcus sold out of every card they ever sold. And this one seems really outlandish, but it's really not. Neiman Marcus used to sell cars. They had an entire Christmas catalog of designer stuff. And every year, one of the offerings was a vehicle. And they really pulled out all the stops. Hey, wait a minute. What does Neiman Marcus sell now? Well, they're out of business now because of COVID. And, uh, well, I mean, yeah. So is. I don't... Oh, man. I don't know if the 2020 catalog was for Christmas 2020 or Christmas 2019. Is it like gadgets or something well yeah it was like a nordstrom macy's That's, thing okay like you're wrong stupid. oh my god i was really oh but my it's god. designery stuff yeah okay well that's why i don't know anything about it they were all limited to specific numbers with specific options and nearly all sold out within hours of the catalog going live some of the highlights include the 1996 bmw z3 dubbed the golden eye z3 came in bond blue bond oh. blue only a hundred were ever sold, and I didn't want to pay four dollars just to watch the movie. But I'm pretty sure the car's not even in the movie for a hundred seconds. Which movie? Goldeneye. Oh, in Goldeneye. Yeah, okay. in, in Goldeneye, James Bond drives a blue BMW Z3, and that color was made specifically for oh, that movie. Wow. I actually, didn't realize that. Actually, the James Bond movies have a have a history of that where they'll get Aston Martin, or I guess they'll get the car maker they work they're working with to make specific colors just for the movie do, do do they sell the tank and what color what bond specific tank color was it i think you need to talk to russia about that oh okay <laughs> the twenty. Oh, no actually the brits have tanks on lock <laughs> <laughs> they'll let you know. i'm pretty sure that's why they did that tank scene it's because they want to make sure we know exactly what they gave to world war one <laughs> The 2011 catalog had the Ferrari FF grace its pages. For a cool 395000 you could have a Ferrari FF in grigio gray. The kicker, I hear you asking? It came with a trip to Aspen, Colorado, and lessons in Ferrari's winter driving experience. And it should be noted the Ferrari FF was Ferrari's first production all-wheel drive car. Take my money. That would be so fun. You know, I've always wanted to drive, like, a sports car in the snow ever since i saw the 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 porsche the one that they it's like an all-wheel drive porsche that can go in the snow oh my god it was a top gear thing it was really sexy i loved it and i've always wanted to do that a winter, driving a ferrari in the snow oh a winter driving school would be fun would be so fun keeping the james bond theme going the 2018 catalog did not feature any cars what do you think it included toys adults yeah that's actually kind of right it was a las vegas spy adventure <sighs> for two days and three hundred fifteen thousand dollars, you could drive ferraris lamborghinis jump from planes and quote eat spy dinners three hundred fifteen thousand dollars that is one lying on a mortgage loan hey which i assume is just three vodka martinis while you sit at a back rat table that's worth three hundred and fifteen grand right there. <laughs> That's a spy dinner. That's, a spy dinner is just playing background and getting drunk on and telling every, which is really just the same waitress, same. but you think it's a different waitress, so you keep saying shake and not stand, shake and not stand, till you fall over and throw up. <laughs> In twenty thirteen, the thirteen McLaren MP four twelve C spiders were offered for the paltry sum of three hundred fifty four thousand dollars. 
except pretty much every MP4-12C is a special order, so there really wasn't anything out of the ordinary about this one. You did get a lunch with the McLaren chairman, Ron Dennis, so I guess that's something. I would pass so hard. That would be a hard pass. I'd be like, just give me my car, bud. It's funny. It's like one of those the, things where like you have to go to the meeting to get the cool thing. <laughs> the article I took this from had a picture of him, and it's like, there's not a single person I'd rather not have a lunch with. No offense, bud, but I'm going to take this to go. <laughs> and no offense, Ron Dennis, if you're listening, but like that just did not sound very <laughs> enticing. Oh, I just don't want to have to eat lunch with people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about this, man. Fair enough. <laughs> Back to the headline. Most are sold out within hours. There was one stark exception. Having heard all the highlights before, what do you think the car was in 2015? Was it a Bentley? No, because that would sell out. Cause... Oh, so it's something that wouldn't sell out? There is one stark exception. Oh, a stark exception. Oh, no, it didn't sell out. <sighs> the realization that just hit you was what? very fun. Brenna's crying. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. What could they feature that wouldn't sell out? Uh, the Chevy Lumina van. <laughs> In Bond page. <laughs> yeah, because I totally remember that Bond film where he drove the Chevy Lumina into the side of a mountain. He was, you know, he took a break where between had, his mission to go deliver somebody's children to soccer where, practice. Where the movie opened and he's laying in the back with the Bond girl and they're <laughs> they're talking about his next mission. Yeah, I remember that one. Oh my one. god, nobody wants to do it in the back of a Lumina <laughs> van. <laughs> That's the saddest thing. But hey, you can't tell me I'm not wrong. That would not sell out. <laughs> Actually, it might do very well because it's economical. The 2015 Neiman Marcus Christmas catalog advertised a Deep Impact Blue convertible Ford Mustang GT with a price tag of $95,000. For a Mustang GT? These cars started out in life as a bone stock V8 Mustang convertible. And uh, they're unstanced. So, uh, <laughs> and they just added a JBL sound system and that's it. <laughs> so the, yeah, the, art, the auto blog article this comes from uh, someone who owns one of these cars posted a comment saying that it was actually just a base model V8. GT, so it didn't have it, was, it didn't have any of the fun stuff like power seats or like heated mirrors or anything. I'm just gonna go ahead, hate me if you want to, but I'm not a huge fan of Ford, and I wasn't a huge fan when they took over Aston Martin and started making mass production of something that used to be made 500 cars in you know a couple years, and they started making thousands of them. No, not great. Okay, well, Anyways, continue. back, back to the Neiman Marcus Ford Mustang GTs. Uh, they started out as bone stock, and then they're given a Ford Racing Supercharger and upgraded headers. This is supposed to bring the car to 700 horsepower and over 600 foot-pounds of torque. Jumps of over 260 horsepower and 200 foot-pounds of torque over stock. Upgraded tires, brakes, suspension, and sway bars were also added. Okay, well, that's nice. All of the glass had been swapped out with Lexan. A weight-saving move that was supposed to help the car reach a 195-mile-an-hour top speed. Now, what is Lexan? Plastic. Like. Oh, so they're trying to make it sound good. Because they use a lot of plastic. 
and a lot of things. Well, it's it's lighter than uh, race car, uh, like NASCARs use Lexan as as their windows because number one, it doesn't shatter, and number and number two, all it's these are it's the windows. Yeah, all the yeah all the windows. Yeah, yeah, and and, and it's lighter than regular glass because it's okay. Well, plastic. Now I know. Yeah, because it's not glass. Because it's not glass. Fast forward to May 2017. Two identical Mustang GT convertibles in deep impact blue were found on a dealer website in Macomb, Michigan. The sequentially VIN-numbered cars were registered as 2015 model years, used, and had an odometer ratings of less than 10 miles each for $35,000. That is such a steal. Unless it's garbage. Is it because it's garbage? So I'm going to give credit to, to autoblog.com and specifically David Gluckman for doing the original research on this. He found that this specific dealer in Macomb at one time had 51 of these 2015 Neiman Marcus Ford Mustangs, all with the same options and sequential VIN numbers. The final two had been on the lot for over two years. Oh my god, he's doing the Burlington Coat Factory thing. We just have all this overstock and we just need to get rid of it. Well, Nobody would buy it. And the the fun part about the Autoblog uh, article and the commenter that bought one was he bought one of the ones that had been sitting on the lot for over a year. So he saw it go up onto their website for, I, I think he said he bought his for around 40 and he called them up, sent them a deposit and went and got it the next day and drove it home. That is, that, that is an outlet deal. Yeah. For, that is an outlet deal right yeah, the, there the final, for a vehicle. <laughs> over $60,000 off for a practically brand new Ford Mustang GT. Wow. Okay. Well, sad I didn't have that. So, in the end, we probably won't ever know how many of these Ford Mustang Neiman Marcus editions were not sold through the magazine, or who fronted the ridiculous bill to eventually get them sold. This story will probably end up just as a footnote in the Neiman Marcus vehicle circus. Wow, I learned many things. Hey, at least, you know what the thing is, is when you lose... Like we have lost today, um, together <laughs> as one we have lost as a unit. Is that once you've lost, you don't even have to worry about the rest of the day because everything's uphill from losing. Which like a little bit of uh, you know, a little bit of wisdom for our audience about losers. I would like to hear about the DeLorean, please. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> The DeLorean came in more than one color. Can you think of a more iconic car than the DeLorean? Yes. Like? Like? Uh, the limo JFK got shot in? Excuse me? Well, if you ever hire a limo... <laughs> I'm sorry, somebody had said that one in don't... reference to the famous, most famous car in the world. <laughs> actually, yeah, but no one ever knows what I don't. Well, actually, I don't know. I didn't look that up, but I wonder where I, I do wonder where that that limo went. And it's, not, it's on. It's at a. It's in a museum. Uh that would like make it's sense. It's owned by the government. Why wouldn't that just go immediately into a museum? Hmm. It's not like it had to be sold all over the place and then tried to hide history. Well, I mean, you know, that's a huge piece of propaganda right there. You don't know. Maybe they hired out that limo. You don't know. And they just buy it. Anyways. Anyways, <laughs> that's okay. Um. No, the DeLorean is most iconic. Yeah. To me, the DeLorean stands for the crazy, hope-filled goals of a lunatic. No matter how futuristic and groundbreaking your invention is, odds are it won't be appreciated in its time. That's for you, Musk. Oh my god, you're gonna love these stories. Cyber -tonk. 
Which is exactly what the DeLorean was. Originally named the DMC-12 after the company DeLorean Motor Company, it was the brainchild of... Robert DeLorean. Surprise, John DeLorean. You were so close. So close. So close. God, one of those names, you know, the ones that everybody has. Where do you think the 12 came from? The 12 apostles of... The 12 tribes of Israel, I don't know what 12 is, the, the amount of eggs that he saw in his fridge. <laughs> the Dorian had a target price of 12000 when it was released. Oh, wow. Oh, which feels like a lie I've heard recently. Elon. <laughs> Cybertronk. So, the designer of the Dorian was Giorgetto Guigaro. And you are most assuredly familiar with his work, even if you don't know it. He was a car designer. Do you think think you can name any cars that he might have designed? Let me think. Let me let me think. Just give me a second. We've mentioned one of the cars already, actually. Oh, we did. Yes, and I, I didn't even know that you were gonna have it in your in your story. Oh. He he's a very famous car designer. He he has designed or had a had his hand in a lot of. Very okay. cool cars. Don't tell me, was it American or British? Neither. Well, he's. But I mentioned it. The one you mentioned was neither. Okay, let me think. The Chevy Lumina. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, 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 no. Let me think about what cars I talked about. The Ford Explorer. He designed cars such as the Ferrari 250 GT. Oh, the Ferrari! Beautiful, beautiful. The Lancia Delta. The Lotus of Spirit. Ooh. Oh, hey, also another Bond car. Even the original Volkswagen Golf was st- was styled by him. Okay, well. It's quite the resume. You can't be great at everything. The original was a pretty good looking car. <laughs> the DeLorean, as it came to be known, because the company dropped the DMC-12 name after it became clear they weren't going to be reducing any other cars, was going to be far ahead of its time. It was supposed to be a high-performance, safe, reliable, and stylish car. Do you know what a Wankel engine is? Or any cars that use them? I do not. Okay, well, a Wankel engine is a rotary engine in which uses a Dorito-shaped rotor in an ovular engine case instead of a piston design. Dorito like the chip? Yes. Okay, clarification. It's shaped like a Dorito, like a chip Dorito. But not probably one with the, the, the curve on the edge, you know. Continue. Without getting more specific, compared to piston engines, rotary engines provide more torque, less vibration, and on the whole are lighter for the same displacement. Oh, and uh, Mazda has a penchant for using them, most notably in their RX-8, oh. which uh, the later years you would definitely know because they had a whole bunch of Dorito-shaped accents, like in like the tailpipes are rotary-shaped, they're cutouts in the, the seats that are rotary-shaped. I think even think the mirrors are rotary-shaped. Anyways. Mm, rotary-shaped. The DeLorean with a rotary engine was going to be quite a quick car. Did you catch the keyword there? Was going to be. Exactly. Due to budgetary and procurement constraints, a Peugeot Volvo designed V6 was in, was used instead. Okay. Other standard options were to include 10 mile an hour crash bumpers, Pirelli P7 tires, which were high performance tires, airbags, and stainless steel body panels. These were all very futuristic options, as nearly no car sold at the time were having these equipped. Neither was the DeLorean. Oh. 
Besides the body panels, the other options were scrapped for cheaper options or to lower the cost of the car. DMC even bought a, the patent right to a brand new form of plastic molding known as elastic reservoir molding. This would have made the production easier, cheaper, and faster to produce cars. Also scrapped. DMC didn't have the capital to investigate the molding process in a meaningful way. This is so sad. Yeah. Because, like, this is, you know, this is that whole thing, no matter how great your idea is, it won't be you've got to have the money. It won't be appreciated in its time. Yep. You know, you know what, let, let's just move past all the ways the DeLorean didn't live up to its expectations. Production began in late 1980, and models were hitting dealerships by January 1981. Enter the 1980 American Express catalog. Yay! It's very difficult to find any news on it, much to do with the research engine optimization of anything, quote, American Express. But from what I can gather, it's like Sky Mall and the publisher's clearinghouse had a baby just in time for Christmas. <laughs> oh, boy. Just wildly overpriced junk Stuff. gifts. Yep. Stuff that people wish that they could return, but they don't know where to return it to. <laughs> the 1980 cover had a DeLorean DMC-12, but not in the usual polished stainless steel. This Christmas, American Express brings you the gift of gold at the end of the rainbow, one of the ads read. Instead of the normal brushed stainless steel, it was gold, plated in 24 karat gold to be exact. Stuffed in between a portable Panasonic TV and a bodybuilding machine, the ad for the gold-plated DeLorean stated that only a hundred will be manufactured. Quote, the first step toward becoming one of the 100 people in the world to acquire this limited edition car is to call one of our toll-free numbers for answers to all of your questions. A deposit of $10,000 is required. Nice, gotta get that upfront money. Which brings us to the price. John DeLorean wanted it to cost consumers $12,000. You want to take a guess at what it actually retailed for? The, the regular version, not the 24 karat gold one. Oh, God. What, like... Like and while you're grand? while you're thinking about this, uh, twelve thousand dollars in nineteen eighty money is around thirty eight thousand dollars today. Oh wow, wow, that's actually oh my god, inflation is insane. Um, <laughs> so let's say uh, five five grand. Did you understand the question? You said what? What did it actually retail for? Yes. Wait, so is it going to be more expensive? I thought I thought he was had like this high. I thought twelve grand was like high, and that we were like, like oh, was it gonna do well? Did it go for like fifty grand? The Dorian had a base price of twenty five thousand dollars, which is oh. around eighty thousand wow. today. Okay, okay, never mind. Yeah, I guess I figured this was gonna be a sad story. Not cheap, especially when a nineteen eighty Corvette Stingray was around nineteen thousand, <sighs> about sixty thousand today. Man, I would I would sell so much blood. Do you even want to take a guess at what the 24 karat oh, gold no, one was? Oh, no, the 24 karat gold one is, let's see, let's do it. It was 25 grand. Oh, it's got to be like 80. 85,000, very oh, good. I'm so close there. That's north of $250,000 today. <laughs> I mean, okay, it's 24 karat gold. What do you expect? Supposedly. So, American Express said they, they were only going to sell 100 to exclusive customers. How long do you think it told him to sell out? Like 10 minutes? They didn't. Only four were ever sold. Oh, that's what I thought. I've really got to go with my gut, even though my <laughs> gut has been bad today. And so just for fun, 
Uh, I looked into kits and services that will plate metal gold. Treating the DeLorean as a brick, so like including the windows, rims, and at a price of $1,680 per ounce in gold, it would cost you over $32,000 to gold plate your DeLorean today. And that doesn't account for the cost of labor for the jeweler to plate the panels, the labor for the shop to remove and reassemble each panel, or the lawyer fees for your divorce. <laughs> yeah, but what if I get my wife's boyfriend to do it all? <laughs> that's got to cut down some of the cost. <laughs> I'm not. That's between you and your cause wife's boyfriend. I'm too busy winning to figure it out. <laughs> oh, gotta get that cringe in there. <laughs> All right, well, that was actually really fun and kind of sad. <laughs> hey, they're out there. Yeah, they are out there. Uh, yeah, uh, one sold at auction, uh, like a little bit less than five years ago. I forget the price. I didn't write it down. Uh, there's one in an auto museum, and uh, the other two are whereabouts unknown. So this is kind of a little aside I was just thinking about, and I don't know if this is going to stay in or not. But when we were driving on our way back from Spokane, we saw this probably, it had to be like five blocks at least, uh, length car, like uh like a pick and pull kind of place and there's just all of these cars and every time you see behind a building there's just more and more cars i wonder if places like that just have like hidden gems just like something in there that's just like oh that's sad there are websites that will aggregate like track that kind of stuff uh well i know it's definitely a thing in in england that like they know how many cars of a certain type were sold so you can put in your car and it'll tell you how many are still on the road I don't think there's a service like that in the U.S., but it, that would be kind of interesting to find out. I just, I just find it so interesting the places where we like dump these things that have had so much meaning that you know were such a big deal, and then all of a sudden they don't work anymore. We don't put the time in, the money in, and they just get dumped places. And just like I don't want to go buy any parts there. I just want to go walk around and see what's there. Like I bet that would just be kind of fun to just go see what's there. Yeah, it's probably all civics, but whatever. <laughs> and a bunch of maybe expeditions. <laughs> For $100, you could own a James Bond car. What is the best scene in the James Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me? Okay, hold on. The Spy Who Loved Me was when the car took off and went into the water and turned into a submarine. Yes! Yes, I know, because I like that scene. Do you know what car that is? Uh, was that the... That wasn't the Lotus, was it? It was the, it's Lotus. the Lotus Esprit. Es- Esprit. Esprit. Spirit. Spirit. Yeah. It's a that, that's how that's how it's written. Yeah. <laughs> so that scene is made better by the fact it wasn't CGI; it was practical effects. We're gonna watch it now just because I like it so much. <sighs> you know what that Esprit looks like? Is the Mercedes from Spaceballs in <laughs> the Mercedes spaceship? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Spaceballs was trying to emulate it. Yeah. Obviously, okay. but it's really funny. <laughs> they did a great job, is what I'm saying. Also, I would just like to say if somebody was about to drive the car into the water and they asked me if I could swim, I too would be just as terrified as her because 
Uh, are you expecting me to try to get out of this car and swim in the ocean? No. I just bob there like a watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pull back the kimono a bit. Are you familiar with Lotus? Not super. You know, there's so many like small car companies that were super famous for little things that I just... Exactly. They're a British automotive company spawned out of the remnants of World War II which is a story of many small British car manufacturers like Austin, Leyland Motors, Morris, and Triumph. They all had the same kind of formula, which was... Make one good car. <laughs> Put everything in it. Build lightweight, good handling cars with small displacement engines. Same thing. And it made sense. The racetracks they were using to test their cars were repurposed airfields from World War II. They didn't have long straights or really long tracks in general. Can I... Can I go back and erase my answer? My actual answer is what you're supposed to do is get James Bond to drive your car. That's the whole marketing. Okay, yeah, continue. So getting back to Lotus, uh, they were among the best at this. They originally sold their cars as kit cars in order to bypass the purchase tax. So any car from before 1970 was built by some person in their garage. That's, you know, wholesome. Lotus made fiberglass monocoque frames to add lightness. Funny enough, Lotus was in bed with DeLorean. In fact, Lotus got some heat from the British government because they had used government subsidies to help the DeLorean Motor Company. Ooh la la, some spicy gongs. And the DeLorean shares underframing in various parts with the Lotus of Spirit, which is the subject of this story. True, I paid attention. You did. I, saw, I heard that name mentioned. Even in 1989, the bidding of unpaid-for storage lockers was a thing. A couple in New York bought one, sight unseen, for the measly sum of $100. And even after visiting the locker and looking under the tarp, they didn't actually know what they had acquired. They had never watched a Bond movie. Oh, no. It wasn't until they were getting ready to move the Lotus to their house that the moving company told the couple that they had a James Bond car. They went out, rented the movie, on VHS no less, and saw the car on screen. It was the submarine Lotus of Spirit. Okay, so you said that they did that with practical uh, stuff. Does that mean... Does We're it have these all gadgets? We're gonna get there. Oh my god. Oh my god, this is so exciting. Okay. This okay. was no ordinary 1976 Lotus Esprit. Eight were procured for the movie, but only one was turned into a submarine. <laughs> this is a submarine car? A marine engineering firm converted it at a cost of $100,000, or over $480,000 today. The wheels and tires had been removed and water foils equipped, so it didn't actually function as a road car when the couple purchased it. It was equipped with four electric motors in the rear to propel it in the water, with batteries in a waterproof container in the passenger compartment. Did you catch that? Batteries in the water. It was a waterproof container in the passenger compartment. The passenger oh, compartment wasn't watertight. Was it waterproof? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here. I'm here. I'm the, alive. The scenes in the movie? They were filmed with a retired Navy scuba diver in full gear behind the wheel. He operated the Lotus in full scuba gear because the passenger compartment was full of water at the time of filming. <laughs> the couple cosmetically restored the Lotus to its former glory and then toured it in various museums and auto shows. They put it out to auction in 2013 where it sold for $997,000. That's it? I'll give you three guesses who bought it. Elon. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Elon I Musk. Heard about this recently? He and also he bought it, disappointed that it didn't actually transform as it did in the movie. <gasps> and bringing it full circle, the Tesla Roadster is based on the Lotus Elise cha- chassis. So while this headline might have been true in 1989, it isn't anymore. But you could have owned a James Bond car for a hundred dollars. So true. It's true. And also, way to rip them off, uh, Tesla. <laughs> that's that's that went from yay to oh why did he think that it would go underwater does he have a car that goes underwater does no 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 make that... no no he thought it would transform like <laughs> yeah the, i know the, like... the submarine car didn't have wheels so it didn't transform like it did in the move like cart the wheels didn't suck up into the into the body and yeah like what other car do you think does that, Elon? You really think they just invented the underwater car and then yep. didn't tell anybody about it? There are amphibious vehicles. Well, I guess submarine yeah. vehicles. That... Who makes those? I didn't look them up. That would have been smart. people make them. No, there are independent manufacturers that do that. That make amphibious vehicles so they can sell the public? Yeah. To <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Smith, not the spies? Yeah. I don't think that's true. I will add some I to the show is... notes. <laughs> it's going to be an empty blank space in the show notes. And if I don't... Be like, here lie where Michael said he'd put all of this information that doesn't exist. If I don't find any, this will be cut from the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I do editing first. You don't get to do it. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to edit it out, and I'm going to make sure I know exactly where it is so I can put it right back in without you noticing. <laughs> That was fun. That was good. Okay. You have any minis? I got I got a notable. <laughs> because we can't stop talking about Bond, I guess this should have just been like almost a Bond episode. <laughs> Four out of the six stories are Bond. Bond part two. <laughs> um, so the famous Toyota and Yamaha creation, the 1967-2000 GT Roadster, had only 351 models produced, all hard tops, with the exception of two topless convertibles custom made for sean connery's james bond in you only live twice apparently 007 was too tall for the original version so they lopped the roof off for a more open seating plan are you familiar with the 2000 gt roadster yes actually uh that is a very expensive car oh yeah yeah it is it is a prize (laughs) yeah it's also a very 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 pretty car and i can only oh, imagine yes. what a spider looks like <laughs> well apparently daniel craig agrees with me that the 2000 gt is the coolest james bond car of all time imagine that oh thanks daniel i know i'm always right but honestly that is a sexy car and it looks a little weird topless but oh, so beautiful so that was mine just that they had to make those special for him. Yeah, I guess James Bond just led to a whole bunch of custom cars. And is leading to. Oh, they're they're doing a new... They're rebooting the DB5. Yeah, yeah, that's boring. Yeah, I know. Speaking of the 2000 GT, this is a photo from 1968. It's of the Bonanza Casino in Reno, Nevada. And uh, can you tell me what car that is right up front? That's the GT. It's a 2000 GT. Wow. Bonanza's also pretty cool, because, I don't know, you don't see very many photos from that era. 
Yeah, well, it looks like a dump now. Well, I mean, it'll, it just looks like one of those, like, I don't know. But yeah, that's... Desert ends. That's a, that's a pretty car. God, that's a pretty car, but then also, the all like, the time period, just all the cars in the back, too, just really make it pop. Yeah, so we'll, I'll add the photo to the the show notes, but yeah, pretty cool. Such a such a hot car, <laughs> man. We we had a couple spicy cars in here. Really liked it. Okay, like okay, the Vanquish is fun and all, but it's just not my style. Man, if I could get me a classic, if I could get somebody to buy me a Ferrari uh, two fifty <laughs> GTO, hey, you know. Yeah, that would be pretty sweet. <laughs> so I had one. So at the outset of the show, you raised your eyebrow when I said George Schuster because you've heard that name before. Do you know why? Why? Okay, so my mini one is the 1908 New York to Paris race. Okay. This isn't strictly about vehicles or cars, so I didn't include it. And there's no way that we have the capacity to properly tell the story. No, not at all. That's like a that's such a big story. But the 1908 New York to Paris race is wild. It's a great story. It is still the longest motor race ever held at over 169 days, crossed over 22,000 miles, the majority of which were not paved, and had only three finishing teams from the starting six. The German team finished first, but had a 30-day penalty for not going through Japan and for shipping their car by railway for part of the journey. The route was supposed to go through the Valdez Strait in Alaska, but was abandoned after the American team scouted Alaska by horseback during the race and wanted to ship the car by dog sled to Russia. The American team had their driver quit midway through. George Schuster, the backup driver, eventually came in first due to the Germans' penalty. And these are just some of the highlights. I highly recommend looking into it. The Smithsonian Magazine citations in the show notes, definitely worth a read. The The entire race is just crazy. Well, might I add, I just don't think that's fair. They're just very smart, is what it was. And we shouldn't have been penalized. I like how they're just like... Yeah, let's not. Let's just let's just let's just go to China. <laughs> <laughs> and also, they're just like, mm, but like, there's a train already. Why don't we just put it on the train? <laughs> there's no traffic on the rail. <laughs> yeah. So. That's pretty fun. The, That's such a fun story. The, the, the I mean, up. it's a it's an insane one. And it's very dangerous. Don't. The note up top is a uh, an ode to to George Schuster, Good. Yeah, the winning American. And fun fact: the the winning car, the the American car, uh, it's on display at the Reno uh, uh, the uh, Auto Museum. Auto there. Museum, yeah. Yeah, I've never actually been there. Yeah, neither have I. Yeah. Wait. Um, well, okay. To be fair, we've only been to like one Auto Museum, and it was because we were just there. Yes. We're big car fans. Well, Cars are cool. You know, if somebody says choose between Michael and a McLaren, it's just, Michael, I can't drive you is the thing, and you don't have those cool, you know, doors. (laughs) (laughs) To the sharks with you. Anyways, uh, what do you think? Is that it? Yeah, that was all I had. Yeah, I think that's it. I think we had a lot of fun, and um, I hope you had a lot of fun out there. I'm Michael. I'm Brenna. Have a good one.
Bye. For show ideas, inaccuracies, or general comments, you can email us at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. Intro and outro music provided by The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void. Found on the Free Music Archive, CCBY license. Thanks for listening. In a world where children make snowmen, this summer, the snowman has no penis. <laughs> That's what I had prepared. Now, what, what I'm saying here is, uh, I don't understand. How can it be a snowman without a penis, you know? Uh, here, we've got a caller live. Uh, yes, caller, what is your problem with the penisless snowman? <laughs>